0: Hello a chhoeso i Academy yr Academi Genedlaethol ar gyfer Ararwynyddiaeth addysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy’n ranannu materion ac arferion arwenyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg ym Hemri Nghymru ac yn Rhymwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales. A podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. Good morning to you all and welcome to our Leadership Unlocked series. I'm Tegwan Ellis, Chief Executive of the National Academy for Educational Leadership. It's great to see so many of you logged on this morning to listen to our guest speaker, Professor David
1: Hopkins. Christo, <laughs> <or> David. i gyd, and time And I'm afraid that's about as far as my O-level Welsh will take me. But let me say uh, that uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be with you today. And um, I'm a very proud uh, Welsh person. Uh, my, I was just telling colleagues uh, before we started that uh, my dad was born in a mining village above uh, Clidagh at Crykeffern Park and comes from generations of miners. I was uh, born and educated in Cardiff and then actually did my uh, did my PGC in Bangor. Uh, so um, I feel very much sort of uh, part of the Welsh educational scene and spent some years uh, in the last uh, in. in in this century are uh, working as a senior policy advisor uh, for the Welsh Government as well. Uh, one for me, though, what's really particularly exciting is that I'm able to sort of work and collaborate with, with, with you today as part of the um, National Academy for Educational Leadership for Wales. Um, leadership is a passion of mine. I, um, uh, When I was Dean of Education at the University of Nottingham, we built a new campus for education. Nottingham. And we also bid for the contract to host the National College for School Leadership, which we won. And so I was um, one of the high points in my professional life was to actually have my faculty on on the same part of the campus we have uh, as the National College for School Leadership in England. And uh, I was very strongly uh, supportive of the establishment of uh, uh, your academy, our academy. And so it's a real delight for me to be uh, be be able to be associated with your work and to share some ideas and discussion with you today. So what I want to, uh, what I would like to do uh, as part of my contribution to the Leadership uh, Unlocked series is that in this uh, presentation, I want to begin by making some general reflections about my views on on, on leadership. And then uh, having done that, I'd like to present to you the model of leadership, uh, a very practical model of leadership, that we've been developing over the last sort of uh, five, or, five or six years or so, and uh, to try to set that out in its practical detail. Then, as Tegwin says, we will engage in discussion and um, questions. And then uh, in the final few minutes I have, what I want to try to do is to link this discussion on leadership to uh, school improvement policy and practice in Wales, which is really where my life's work uh, has, has resided. And um, where I want to begin is with uh, an acknowledgement that uh, we do very good science in leadership. Uh, this is a, um, uh, the, the slide depicts a, uh, an illustration from a, from a research paper recently written by a man called Philip Hallinger uh, and colleagues, which, which reviews all of the research evidence globally about um, educational leadership. Uh, since 1960, and uh, they have, they have uh, managed to produce a, an analysis from thousands of studies of, of leadership from, from, from around the world, and to do a sort of a content analysis uh, of that work to identify the various strands of leadership and where the most effective work has been done. And um, as you can see, I put a little, di- I put a little uh, red arrow there against my name which represents the work that uh, I've been doing over the years in terms of uh, leadership for school in, for school improvement, and uh, you may see some names you're familiar with there as well. You can see Alma Harris's name there, and her contribution has been recognised as well. Uh, as well as this, uh, as well w- as this uh, research paper on educational uh, change, um, Hallinger and his colleagues has done a more recent pa- paper called are principals instructional leaders yet? And again, he's gone back to 1940 to look at the studies on educational um, leadership um, as it relates to teaching and learning uh, globally. And uh, as you can see from the next slide, that the focus on uh, instructional leadership has spread, has spread, has spread globally. And so my point to you is that uh, your work uh, in the National Academy is part of a global movement where we're trying to create more powerful learning experiences for young people uh, around the world and to explore the sort of the leadership dimensions of this and um, once again this is the last slide I will show, show you from this research But again, uh, this is taken from Hallinger's most recent paper and shows you the sorts of the the, the authors, but also the topics that seem to be most crucial uh, in our global work uh, on um, uh, educational leadership. So I wanted to start there just to sort of uh, um, help us understand that we work from a good tradition. Our work is, 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 is important on a daily practical basis. But we're also supported by the by, by a really phenomenal evidence base that has grown uh, quite phenomenally uh, over the years. But also, I think it's important to recognize that um, there's been a sort of a an evolution uh, of the field uh, in the field of leadership. Um, and I have got there an attempt to try to sort of chart that that development. Uh, leadership studies began by sort of what is called personality or trade theories of leadership. People were interested in the qualities or characteristics of successful leaders. Then we began to focus uh, on what leaders actually do, the behavioral theories of leadership. Then a realization that uh, often uh, leaders responded to their context. So a more, much more of a focus on situational or transactional leadership. And then I guess in about 20 years ago, Uh, An increasing emphasis on the link between leadership um, style and the culture of the organization. How um, Michael Fullen once said that that, uh, the only thing of real importance that leaders do is to manage and shape culture. And that uh, led us to think about notions of transformational leadership, how leaders transform uh, their organizations, in our case, their schools. But more recently, and I think um, most importantly, uh, that there's been a a narrowing of that focus. Although cultural change and transformation are important, the real the real focus has to be on teaching and learning and the achievement of our students. And hence the development of the field uh, of instructional leadership. And I'm sure that uh, Alma said to you when she spoke to you last week or the week before last, uh, she talked about the paper that uh, she and uh, Ken Leithwood and I have written or the papers that we've written on on instructional leadership. And I'm sure she talked to you about the sort of the spread of of that, the spread and influence uh, of that work. So with that, with a bit of background, let me share with you a couple of the sort of the thoughts about leadership that I tend to sort of uh, 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 talk about uh, currently. Um, I'm absolutely uh, taken by the work of Jim Collins uh, in his book, uh, Good Good to Great. Uh, one of the great things about Jim is that not only is he a, uh, uh, a researcher in organisations, but he's also a mountain climber. And as I mentioned to some of you before, I've had a second career uh, as a professional mountain guide as well. So he's got to be a good bloke. And uh, what Jim did in Good to Great, not that he didn't study uh, educational organisations. He studied studied, uh, corporate organisations in in the States and he tried to look at the leadership characteristics of those organisations that were most successful commercially. And he came up with his sort of five levels of leadership, and I'm not going to talk through the five on the screen at the moment, but I just want to take you to his conception of the level five leadership. And he talks about the level five leaders who build enduring greatness through a paradoxical combination of personal humility and professional will. I think that's just a glorious phrase personal humility professional will ambitious not for themselves but for their school and this and their students and uh, so i commend you i commend um, the level five notions uh, that uh, jim has de- developed uh, to you and you'll see that that theme is redolent uh, in what i'll be, be saying to you this morning we also of course have uh, because of the sort of the work we've been doing on PISA globally, is, uh, uh, in addition to the sort of the uh, uh, research papers of Hallinger, uh, we've identified what the sort of, I think, what the key big leadership themes are uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of our challenge for education uh, globally. And uh, those are the five that I think are really important. And I hope you'll see these themes come through uh, in the model that I'm going to be sharing with you in a few minutes time. But the focus on moral purpose, the core uh, commitment to improving teaching and learning, creating powerful learning environments for our teachers as well as our students, uh, emphasizing sustainability and working from the inside out, uh, eschewing top down change and taking control uh, of the change agenda uh, on the of the change agenda ourselves, and for me, part of the key contribution of leadership is 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 the development of narrative. I want to make this point right at right at the outset that I haven't been into a good school or a, or, or a leading educational organisation where the students, uh, where the teachers, where the community can't tell me about the narrative of the school, where this school is going, because it is narrative that actually combines the moral purpose, on the one hand, with strategic action on on the other. So the cultivation of narrative seems to me to be uh, a key uh, 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 characteristic, a key facet uh, of effective leadership. And if you're not on a journey to excellence, the road to nowhere uh, is yours, as it says on the slide there. And then um, finally, I guess, in terms of sort of this in, these introductory comments, um, in my experience, and again, this, this, uh, this slide is based upon my experience of working uh, globally at the moment on school improvement programs in a number of different countries in, in, in the world. But what we're seeing is that those schools that are really making the difference leadership uh, is clear about what is non-negotiable but they, they don't try and do everything they try to do the things that are most important for their youngsters it'll make the, the, the difference they pull the long levers to uh, generate uh, high levels of learning and and achievement they install that they install cap- like-minded people they deeply engage with, with stakeholders they would secure resources and they get early wins on the board and as I so sort of look and, and and work with colleagues who've been leading their schools those seem to be the types of activities that that they that they engage in uh, in the early phases of, of their work so uh, with that by way of introduction let me take you into the burden of what I want to say because one of my one of my problems as been when I've been looking at the the uh, the research work and the literature uh, on leadership that there seems to be a proliferation of uh, leadership models. <clears throat> uh, Ken Leithwood once said that we, we are bedeviled by uh, leadership by adjective. Uh, any person who writes a book or gives a talk on leadership seems to want to uh, have their own adjective to describe their own approach. And I think that becomes then that leads the field to become a little bit confused. You know, should I take on instructional leadership? Let's go back on that slide. Should I take on instructional leadership? Should I take on strategic leadership? Am I I an adaptive leader? Am I a system leader? And uh, the answer to that, of course, is you are all. Uh, we engage in these modes of leadership uh, at particular points in time, depending upon the challenges that we're actually facing as leaders uh, in our own, in our own contexts. And so as I was sort of thinking about that, I then began to think, well, let's try and see if we can build a more comprehensive and inclusive uh, model of, of leadership. And um, I think, I hope in the pre-reading that you've got, you've been given, uh, you will have had a sort of a version uh, of this this slide here, uh, which is my sort of model of um, of, of leadership, which starts by saying that the heart of leadership is is, is a moral purpose, uh, a commitment to the learning of our students. And then um, surrounding that is our own personal development as leaders. And I think there are two aspects to this. I think that most uh, outstanding leaders, of course, they come on courses run by the National Academy, uh, but they engage in development through a process of reflection, uh, that they're always benchmarking themselves against outstanding uh, uh, outstanding leaders and and trying to work out what they could do to, to get better. And that inner drive, I suppose, which is this sort of Collins's uh, humility, uh, 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 as well as as well as drive, is linked to something which I call strategic acumen. Highly effective leaders seem to me to be able to work in in the in the instant and in the medium term. That they make decisions later today which are important for today, but also help them move to where they want the organisation to be in the future. So the ability to be strategic and linked immediate to medium-term action seems, seems, to me to be, seems to me to be absolutely crucial. And then if you look at the sort of the next ring of my sort of uh, model here, um, <clears throat> are the three key behaviours that the research that Alma and Ken Leithward and I have been doing over the years. And it's become very apparent to us that the basic repertoire of uh, skills and behaviours Four effective instructional leaders are the focus on teaching and learning, developing people, the staff of the school, uh, and to extend an extent, the community, and to develop the school as a personal, uh, purposeful organisation. So it's, it's the vision first, then the focus on teaching and learning, then the commitment to professional development of staff and then building a strong, vibrant uh, school organisation. Those, those seem to be the four things that effective leaders do. And my challenge to colleagues is that if, if, you, if, if you look back at your diary for the, last, uh, for, the, you know, for the last half term, if you're not spending at least three quarters of your time doing those types of things, you've really got to be asking yourselves, uh, what are you doing with your time? And the final aspect of my model uh, is the outer ring here, today? Is it? going on? Is the um, which is sort of how we take a commitment towards the system as a whole. Uh, I began to develop uh, ten years ago some policies in Wales for system leadership, where where leaders are committed not just to their own school but also to the development of their communities and the generation of a powerful educational system in Wales. And I that's, this is not for all leaders, but I think it is an aspect. Uh, of, uh, of leadership uh, that I think we need to embrace, at least in terms of our work uh, as a national academy. So <clears throat> what that has done for me, if you take that model, if you want to then sort of extrapolate from, from that, I think you can identify four leadership, st- four leadership styles. And I've done that sort of implicitly in, in what I've just been saying. I think that you can identify an instructional leadership role an adaptive leadership role, a strategic leadership role and a system leadership role. And I have uh, put them uh, there on the screen and you've you've got some descriptors of them. So then what I did, and I think this is where this work is slightly un un slightly unusual, uh, is I then began to sort of uh, to do an analysis uh, of these four four styles. And if you look on the screen now, you can see that uh, on the left-hand side column is the, is the, is the labels I've given to these uh, 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 to, to these styles um, uh, as related to the model. But the big difference that I've made is that I've then developed an implementation strategy to go alongside these four, these four approaches. Often we just have descriptions of the role. But uh, in the material that that I've developed and in my leadership manual, I've not just described what instructional leadership is or adaptive leadership is. I've then actually presented a framework that we can use to actually work in that particular particular domain. And I'll try to give you a flavour of these uh, as I continue with with the presentation. And I've also tried to calculate from the data that that's been available, uh, the effect, the effect size uh, of each of these leadership approaches. So you can see I've tried to take a sort of a fairly holistic approach uh, uh, to um, to uh, leadership uh, in this work, uh, in this work that I've done and i'm now going to take you through uh, the four the four approaches to share with you my definition of of them and also to share with you the sort of the uh, the the strategy the implementation strategy uh, that we that that we have developed so let me begin then with uh, instructional instructional leadership and i've got to take you to the paper that uh, uh, ken Leithward and alma harris and myself wrote initially uh, over 10 12 years ago now And I think in 2008, was it, or 2009, we published a paper called Seven Strong Leadership Claims, which has become the most uh, cited, the most quoted paper on leadership uh, um, this this century, uh, apparently. And time uh, prevents me from talking through each of these seven claims, but I just want to pull out uh, a, a couple of them. The first is that uh, school leadership, according to the evidence, is second only to classroom practice as an influence on student learning. So our work is uh, incredibly, incredibly important and the work of the National Academy is really important. Globally, almost all successful leaders draw on the same repertoire of basic leadership practices, which is a point I've already made and will sort of uh, highlight, a- highlight again. But the crucial point here is that it is, it, it is how these practices are implemented in response to context that makes the difference. So I can do an analysis of instructional leadership and I can prepare an implementation strategy. But the real skill comes from you implementing that in the context in, within which you, you are working. And that's the real skill of, of leadership. Is adaptation to context. A lot of our, our good ideas in education travel really, really well globally, but it is the adaptation to context, adapting them to what is important in Cardiff or Camarthen or, or 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 Cairo and Aravon, or and how they respond to the needs of our communities, which is absolutely which is absolutely crucial. And then. <clears throat> What we've done in the paper, and you can see from the slide where when you actually get it, is we've actually begun now in, in the most recent version of this paper that we published last, last year, the year before last, we have begun to amplify uh, the specific leadership practices related to these four domains uh, of, of, of practice. And um, so we've got more precision now, more specification about what it is that effective leaders do. And we've also learned lot a lot more about the sort of the personal qualities uh, of educational leaders and um, what we're now calling them up our personal leadership resources so are we developing us are we developing our cognitive resources our social resources our psychological resources and we learn a bit more now about what these actually comprise that in terms of uh, in terms of the cognitive resources, for example, you know, are we good problem solvers? Do we have specific knowledge about literacy, about vocational uh, education? And can we think of systemically? And these seem to me to be the sort of, the seem to us to be the important, uh, some of the important characteristics of us as leaders going forward and provide a bit of an agenda for us uh, in, terms, in terms of our uh, own professional development and, and, and learning so um let me just move on i've just sort of just a couple more slides about sort of uh, instructional leadership this is the implementation strategy that we've developed it uh, how instructional leaders uh, embed the narrative select the key pedagogic strategies place professional learning at the heart of, of this work of the school achieve consistency and change culture and if you look again at the work we've done, you can see that how we actually give advice on, on how you engage with each of those, um, with each of those uh, areas of of work. I've also done some work on. on I'm very committed to personalised learning, and as those of you who who know me and my work, and we've begun to sort of try to sketch out sort of a rather holistic view of what leadership of personalised learning looks looks like in the classroom, in the school. Uh, across the system and related to a sort of a a series of strands that sort of comprise personalised learning that you can see uh, in the uh, in the left hand column. So I hope that gives you a sense of what we mean or what I mean by instructional leadership, the research we've done there, and some of the implementation strategies that we've that we've developed uh, in order to assist us uh, working in working in that domain. I would suggest instructional leadership is critical, but is not not necessarily enough, because in some contexts, we need to actually go deeper in terms of responding to the professional challenges that our teachers are engaged in, and to try and create a work culture that actually enables our colleagues to expand their repertoire of teaching practices. And this is where we move into the area of adaptive leadership uh, associated with the work of uh, a man called Ron Heifetz, who was a, um, uh, Ron was a a professor in the States who wrote uh, 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 evocatively about uh, about, um, adaptive change. And he talked about the adaptive challenge as being a problem for which solutions lie outside current ways of operating. So we have we have as a leader, we have a sort of a um, as leaders, we have a sort of a, an option when we face a challenge. Do we just ignore it and pretend we'll just so sort of deal with it as we do to deal with things normally? Or do we absolutely focus on, on, on it and try and make a real difference? And this is what sort of Heifetz was arguing for. And he talked about the difference between technical challenges and adaptive challenges technical challenges are what we can actually resolve through, through current knowledge. Adaptive knowledge demands diagnostic inquiry uh, into the realities that threaten the realisation of, of that purpose and requires us to reflect uh, on the moral purpose. And he draws a line there between the sort of how we diagnose the challenges that we have uh, between technical and adaptive. And the key point here is that as we engage more with adaptive work, we need to create a work culture uh, in the school that enables us to actually uh, manage change. And there's some generic skills here that uh, leaders uh, require. And I've sort of talked to some of these already. Uh, but the one I like uh, here, which I'll emphasise again, is is give people the confidence to continue. As leaders, our greatest gift as we move away is to give confidence and independence and autonomy to our, to our colleagues. I think this requires us to have a clear... In doing this, we need a clear idea and understanding of the two functions that schools as organisations have. And I think this is where a lot of our problems occur, really. That um, the two functions that... Um, Any organisation have about maintenance and development and I've tried to sketch out on the top half of that slide the notion of maintenance uh, as a um, uh, as a function and tried to describe it what the maintenance function of a school looks looks like it's about the permanent systems we establish it's about the school management teams the structure and processes that we put, put into place and the permanent structures we establish to enable our schools to become efficient the roles and hierarchies, the curriculum, the sort of membership of groups and so on. And we're familiar with that. That's what schools tend to be judged on. And when they fail, schools fail inspections, it's often some delinquency in the maintenance system that's pointed out by by inspectors. However, if we only focus on the maintenance uh, system then we're, we're always, we always are inevitably going to fall behind. We need also to develop a uh, create a development system uh, which which really becomes the way in which we manage and introduce change in, into the school. so I talk you know, as, as I work with leaders and I work on school improvement programs, I try to help uh, schools develop and create their development system which becomes the, the, the engine for change inside the school. I've deliberately drawn it underneath the maintenance system, because it's the, the development system that brings in the new ideas that actually helps to improve and expand the repertoires of practice of, of our colleagues. And key to this is the establishing of a school improvement team who become the internal change agents of the school. And uh, these are the folk who I tend to train, come onto my master's or doctoral programmes and become the engine house of change in, in, inside the school. So managing uh, maintenance and development is absolutely, uh, is, is, absol- is absolutely crucial. One more point, uh, two more points, if I may, about a development system inside, inside the school. Uh, the first is that we need to have uh, an effective approach to professional learning. And together with colleagues like uh, Bruce Joyce, we've been working over the last 20-odd 20, 20 years trying to develop a coaching model uh, for, for professional development. And the point here is that teaching is a skill. And as we, put a, as we put a new teaching skill into our repertoire, we need to actually uh, follow a sort of a pattern of learning, a pattern of professional learning. And we, we learn a skill through understanding the theory. By seeing it demonstrated, but by practicing it ourselves, and then by receiving feedback uh, on that practice. That's the sort of workshop setting that we need to create inside our schools if we're going to develop the skill base and expand the repertoire of our colleagues. And then the next bit, and this is this is the one that really adds value and makes the difference, is once you've been through the workshop, then can we create a situation for peer coaching where teachers can support each other in the development and embedding of skill and uh, i tend to use the word triad i know that's not a terribly fashionable word but what i try to do with the schools and with my schools is that uh, the staff is divided into groups of three these become the peer coaching units in the school And following a workshop, they meet regularly, they observe each other in pairs, they use the protocols we've developed uh, for uh, effective teaching. And they create a sort of a learning community amongst themselves. And um, what has been absolutely clear to me is that once schools begin to establish this infrastructure as a consequence of their instructional and adaptive leadership, then the school culture really changes and changes and changes quite dramatically. And it never goes back. Uh, this, is the, this is the big change that actually sustains uh, the good times well, in, well into the future. Now I can see Tegwen my, in my, uh, my pane here, and she's a very strict timekeeper. So I'm going to uh, make certain I finish uh, spot on at quarter past 10. So I'm going to move us on from the consideration of, um, of uh, uh, adaptive leadership, just to say finally on, on this, that those are the sort of the five conditions that you put into place if you want to build intrinsic motivation, which is the outcome of, of, adaptive, um, of adaptive leadership. So let me take you through to strategic leadership. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I want to just... Uh, Bring in here a tool that um, we developed uh, some some uh, recently to help our schools become more strategic and to move from the present uh, into the medium, into the medium term. One of the metaphors that I have uh, u- used in my work on school improvement is that school improvement um, is a is a journey we be using the metaphor of the of the journey. But if we if we do journey on our on our progress in terms of school improvement, we need to have some maps, some guidelines to keep us to keep us on track. And um, in order to help us do that, what I've done is to develop a, a, a tool uh, called the School Improvement Pathway and um, This is, uh, I believe, is the key to to strategic um, uh, leadership. What I've done is that I've identified four phases of development of of, of a school. And some people are uncomfortable with with some of these. I talk about uh, phase one is awful to adequate, adequate to good, uh, good to great and great to excellent. Now, I've got to say immediately that that there are no awful schools in Wales uh, anymore. Uh, But uh, in some of the jurisdictions I work in, sadly, there are. And uh, what we have to to realise is that we have to to, uh, 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 develop the strategy related to the phase in which the school actually is. So if you do take over a failing school, you're doing different things with that school if and if you're taking over an outstanding school that you want to move to to excellence so we've got to be clear about the sort of the phases that a school is in to have accurate diagnosis of which phase a school is and then we've got to actually look at certain dimensions of schooling which are absolutely crucial be it the curriculum be it the quality of teaching the learning assessment or or leadership so if you take that as a so, sort of the major sort of uh, ingredients of this approach, you can see on the left hand side of the diagram are the is the improvement dimension. So what's the curriculum like or what's in teaching like uh, the learning and so, so on. And then the next four columns are the phases of development going from pretty poor to quite outstanding and, and, and uh, excellence. Now, this is a sequential process. You don't it's not a la carte. You don't pick pick one or the other. You move through this process. And when schools begin to when schools begin to analyze themselves against uh, the um, against the uh, school improvement pathway, they find themselves very much consistent in one group with just a little just with just a little bit, bit of spread. So taking on to the final slide on this. And uh, you can see through the build here th- each of those pages is uh, uh, related to one of the phases uh, of school of school de- development and um, <clears throat> uh, you have to take my <laughs> the, the, the print is too small here so you have to take my word for for this but um, on the left hand side are the five components that I've already talked about in the sort of, the lighter Color column uh, are some are some key criteria, which help you locate where your school is. So there are key car, key criteria related to curriculum, to teaching, to learning, and so on. So you can locate where, where your school is. And then in the final two columns on the right are some uh, heuristic questions some diagnostic questions which try which ask you about where you are going so they point you in the direction that you need to be going in so they're developmental questions that you can use to sort of guide your development and practice and so what we found is that schools who actually use this they find that they are largely in one in one phase right so they are could be inadequate to good. There may be a smattering of good to great and smattering of adequate, but essentially they're, 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 they're there. And the questions guide their development journey uh, through from adequate to good, good to great, and from great, from great to to, to excellent. So this is a strategic tool um, that leaders can use to um, to chart their direction, to chart their direction for forward. So those are th- my first three: instructional, adaptive, strategic leadership. And now I just want to, uh, in the last uh, few minutes, uh, take uh, talk a little bit about uh, system leadership. And um, I think I need to, uh, I'm going to claim uh, a little bit of credit for this because when uh, I was uh, at one point in my life, after I left. Nottingham and the National College, I then joined the English government and was responsible for school standards uh, in England for a period of time. And I developed the concept of system of system leadership, as I've tried to just sort of characterize it uh, briefly er earlier, where we take on some degree of responsibility, not just for the quality of provision and learning in our school, but how that contributes to the quality of education more generally in Wales uh, as a country and as a principality. And so what I tried to do was to, to was to in this aspect of my work to try to get a sense of what how do we engage with the whole system? How do we take a system wide view uh, on, um, on on development? And uh, I don't know those uh, some of those sl- some of those bullet points there or an attempt to try to capture uh, 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 an idea ab- uh, about this. That our educational system is driven by high expectations for all and an unrelenting focus on the quality of learning and teaching. And that's a sort of, that's the that's a narrative that you, as the National Academy, need to be pushing the whole time. Um, uh, enhancement of teaching quality as being the crucial ingredient of any uh, improvement uh, strategy nationally and that requires us to develop a common practice and a language that actually enfranchises this all and a realization that all of the elements of a system are sort of linked are sort of linked together that's how I came at this and we we, we we've learned a lot of this through the through the research we've been doing on PISA and other international benchmarking studies, but then I was sort of faced with a with a challenge. Well, how do I make this work in a country uh, in a country like England? And um, <clears throat> so, what I did, and I need to ex- just take a moment to, to explain this uh, this 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 slide. What I did was, at that point in time, I was responsible for three thousand three hundred and thirteen secondary schools. And so I got my statisticians to begin to do an analysis of uh, of a value added analysis uh, of these uh, of this group of three and a half thousand schools, almost. And from that analysis, I was able to segment the school population in England. And what I mean by that is I was able to produce from this analysis some very clear categories whereby schools would actually fall fall into. And um, you can see the sort of the names that we gave to those categories of schools. And you can see the sort of numbers that we've got that we got there. So in the middle are the progressing schools, which has got a reasonable level of value added. And of course, that was about half of the population uh, of uh, secondary schools in England at the time. But then at the, you know, at the other extremes, the schools that were leading the system, there were only about a hundred of those. And <clears throat> fortunately, there, there were, weren't that many uh, low achieving schools. Actually, we managed to, to actually shift this distribution quite dramatically, uh, during my time, uh, during my time in, in government. So that's the analysis we did of, of the schools. But the clever bit, I think, comes in the next, in the next slide. And this is what I would sort of commend to you. Uh, this is very specific in terms of uh, the policies I was engaged with, but I think the general point uh, appears. And I should have actually had a build on this slide, so my, so uh, so my apologies for not having that. But if you just have a look um, uh, at the left hand, the left hand column there, what I've done is just to identify four types of schools, not the six, but the four types. I know I'm finishing very soon. Um, And I've got four types that I call leading, succeeding, underperforming and failing. All right. Then I've come in the key strategy section. I've looked at what do those schools in those categories need to do to improve? So what are the improvement strategies for each of those those types of schools? And then if you look, if you just cast your eye down those, you'll see. But each of those are things that schools do to each other or can do to each other than be provided from uh, than than can be provided externally. And then in the final column, I I looked at some of the policy levers I could pull in order to sort of get this movement to happen. So you see where I'm taking you on that is that what you can do is to create a system whereby we can acknowledge the different phases that schools are in and then begin to identify the improvement strategies that schools in networks and in combination can provide can provide for for each other. That's the key point. And that is a debate that I had with ministers when I was, as I say, a senior policy advisor in Wales now, you know, a half a dozen, 10, 10 years ago. But if, it were, if I was to leave you with one thing today, it would be to try to engage with that idea once again and to use your influence uh, as a national academy to try to generate this sort of systemic uh, support uh, across, uh, across the, the country. So that's where I think I'm going to finish. I can identify some roles here of system leadership. Um, uh, you you are sort of familiar with some of those because I think I brought them into the uh, educational lexicon uh, when I was um, working for the, the, the Welsh government. Um, this is an example which I don't have time to go through about how a school supports an, uh, the other one in a direct and and systematic way. And then finally... Uh, as part of this systemic movement, uh, it seems to me we need to take seriously um, networking and we need to create network structures uh, across across the principality. And I know you've had some attempts to do that in the recent past. Uh, I don't think from what I understand, they've, all, they've always been conspicuously successful, but um, certainly... For me, one of the, again, one of the sort of the goals I think the National Academy should be embracing is to sort of support and generate different network types uh, across across the principality. So there we go. Uh, that's my attempt to try to summarise the model of, of, of leadership that we've been working on. I commend it to you insofar as each of these leadership styles, I think, are necessary at different points in time. And I would sort of... Uh, commend sort of this manual and the work we've done. Not not, uh, because it's academically good, uh, although I hope there's very good research evidence there that's built on some of the stuff I've been talking about, but but because because I believe that there are some helpful, practical strategies that enable to translate your leadership vision into practice for the benefit of your teachers and your students and your communities. Thank you very much.
2: Good okay, morning, everyone. I'm Jo Cueto. I'm head teacher at Maidy Primary School in Newport, but I'm also facilitating the question and answer session today as a National Academy for Educational Leadership Associate. Um, there was lots for us to think about this morning. I've written pages and pages of notes of things that I want to explore further. So it's been really useful. So, so thank you, David, for that. So there's a few questions that have come through already. Um, if there were questions in your group that haven't been sent through by one of the associates in your group, please feel free to put them in the chat um, and we'll get to as many as we can this morning. So we've got half an hour um, for our questions and answers. So um, for the first question, I'd like to hand over to Alison Ellis to ask her a question. Hi, David. Um, we had uh, you Hi, know, lots, lots and lots to talk about because there was so much this morning, um, Um, We picked quite a few things out, but obviously one of the things is um, a few of us come from very small schools. And so really, how do you feel that the models describe transfer to the small school Mm -hmm. setting?
1: Well, that's a really good question, Alison and um, uh, Uh, Borodaki. I think that uh, the challenges of small schools in Wales in particular are, are, are very great. And I wouldn't want to underestimate those at all. Um, but I think that for me, it, it's about how we diagnose our role as leader. Um, I'm not at times situations and challenges occur which require a sort of a, uh, a an instructional leadership response or an adaptive response, right? So in a sense, we've got to keep those styles in our minds and that we are sort of fluent in responding to the challenge using one of these sort of uh, leadership resources, in a sense. So, you know, it's not just an instructional leader or an adaptive leader or a strategic. Mm -hmm. leader, Either. when one has those styles in one's repertoire and then you do a diagnosis of where you are and and then you sort of go into that mode for that period of time or for that particular challenge. Um, does, does that make sense? to you um i think it's i think it's more challenging and more difficult to do in a small school when there are when there are you know a smaller group of people but i think it's being analytic about what the ch- challenge is and then bringing whatever leadership resource or, or style that's required to that particular problem do you want to come back to, on that
2: yeah i mean yeah i think that 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 does really answer it um i guess we we felt with the capacity is the issue um, with, with but as you say it 's focusing on and, and being clear yeah. the
1: other the, the other thing the, the other way to tackle it, I guess is to um, you know, try to develop uh, a, a, a network type of relationship with colleagues that, in a sense, one of you becomes more expert in, in instructional leadership or another one in adaptive leadership or running triads, you, you know, and so you apportion roles out across, you know, a, across a number of you uh, in the, you know, in the area that, that, you, that, that you're in, you know, in your community.
2: That's great. Thank you. Alison, does that answer your your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, there are colleagues on on the session this morning from all sectors across educational leadership. And I think, you know, what David's saying about diagnosing um, what the issue is and what leadership style could support could be applied in lots of different settings. So so thank you for that question, Alison. Uh, We're moving on to Andrew Brassington next, which I think there was quite a lot in, in Andrew's question
1: hi andrew
3: hi david yeah thanks for your input this morning really thought-provoking lots lots as um joe said to look into as well um this is quite broad really david um i love the description that you put up i can't remember the name um you know of the person who who made that you put up the quote about adaptive leadership and that question of kind of you know finding ways of thinking that are not in existence at the moment yeah and it really struck a a chord and particularly thinking about where we are at the moment in terms of curriculum reform and that whole agenda, which certainly was on my mind listening to you. And, you know, we're all sort of in that process as well at the moment, whatever sector we're in really. Um, And it struck me that that, that definition, that quotation was very much a sort of description of where we are in terms of that process at the moment. And I wondered just really whether you, you know, saw, where we are on this journey in wales if there are any sort of synergies between what you're talking about in terms of improvement pathways for individual schools but also system-wide as well and whether you know where we are in terms of curriculum Mm -hmm. form offers some you know some ways forward with that it presents Mm -hmm. some challenges but also some opportunities Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah Uh, well uh, that's a (laughs) a <laughs> big question. Um, mm-hmm. So let's just have a have a little cracker. And and I'm I'm not I'm not totally familiar with uh, the detail of the curricular of your curricular reform. So let me but let me have a crack. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the first thing that I should say um, in response to Ron Heifetz's notion of, a, of adaptive uh, leadership is that uh, and I didn't. Time was short, so I wasn't able to go into it, into any details. But he talks about a technical challenge and an adaptive challenge. And a technical challenge is one that we have the knowledge, you know, currently to resolve. All right. Um, uh, uh, so you know, I would say that if, if in, in terms of language acquisition, we know uh, how to how to teach Wales as mother uh, Welsh as a mother tongue. Uh, the question is, do do we do it on on Or not. Um, An adaptive challenge is that we don't have that knowledge, so we 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 have to problem solve. And the the difficulty is that sometimes we try to resolve adaptive problems through technical solutions, and vice versa. So I think the first thing we need to do is be really clear as to the nature of the challenge, and to begin to scope and to begin to scope that out. Um, Now the real Issue about implementation um, is that you have to change individuals' patterns of behaviour, and this is where things tend to come unstuck because we're not desperately good, uh, typically, in changing our behaviours, in, in incorporating new new behaviours into into our repertoire. So the challenge I think that uh, we have as we have as leaders is 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 twofold. One is to be clear about the nature of the change, and then, having got that clarity, then to be able to create a learning situation where colleagues can expand their repertoires of of practice. I mean, that sounds a bit theoretical. So let me just try and be be a bit more practical there. I want to just introduce though another concept before I do that. Of the zone of proximal development, are you are you familiar with the Gotsky yeah. zone of proximal development? Well, the 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 heart of a of adaptive leadership is creating professional learning opportunities in the zones of proximal development of our colleagues. All right. Uh, so in the same way as we create tasks for our students in their zones of proximal development, we've got to do that in a in our professional learning situations. And that I think is the crux of, um, of effective, uh, of of effective leadership in this area, creating, um, and this is why, uh, uh, this is why I use the triad notion quite a lot, because you could, that's quite adaptable. You can actually get groups of three teachers with varying degrees of, of, of experience working, working together. And that, if you set the right types of professional learning tasks for them, then you can begin as a leader to sort of scope out progression over 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 a period of time. So, sorry, that sounds all airy fairy. So, let me just come back and be, try to make that very concrete. What are the question number one? What are the key challenges in the implementation of the new curricula? Right. Now, let's just say, for example, we're putting more emphasis on independent learning and uh, uh, inquiry based inquiry based pedagogy. All right. Step two, what does inquiry based pedagogy look look like? All right. And we've got to go. And I'm, if you uh, we've got to move down from the theoretical to the practical which is why uh, in my work I produce, I mentioned the word protocols. So when we talk about higher higher order questioning, we produce a sort of an outline of what higher order questioning actually looks like in very practical ways, in very accessible ways. We then make that available to the groups of three teachers, right? And they use that as a basis of observation for each other, right? On, you know, say over a half term or, or, or over a term. So they do... I don't know three, four cycles of observation using the protocol against each other and sharing it in a non judgmental, in a non judgmental in a, in a way. So that's how I would, that's how I would progress. I would deconstruct what, what the key challenges, what the key pedagogic challenges are, put them into a practical format uh, that uh, is specific in terms of what the teacher does, and then arrange these groups of three. Around that on uh, uh, the groups of three observe each other using the protocol over a half term or a term. And I think then you'll find that you're really beginning to embed those sorts of skills uh, and beginning to sort of a, attack the problem of implementation in bite-sized in bite-sized chunk, chunks. Sorry, that's a bit sort of all over the place, but I hope it, you get a bit of a thread, a bit of a thread there. Yeah.
2: Andrew, did you want to come back on anything?
3: Well, yeah, only to say I think that was brilliant. Thank you, David. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I love the fact that you went straight to independent learning and inquiry-based pedagogy in there because, you know, that's really where I think we need to be looking personally. Absolutely. And I think you know the pedagogical principles have been there from the outset but i think there's a real risk in in just having that sat there as some sort of checklist or description of what's ever been thus and i think we've really got to move on that but i think you know your balance there of kind of i i I really like this idea of you know what is an adaptive part of it and what actually is the technical part of it separating those two out and thinking which element we need to be working on
1: keep clarity on that yeah and, yeah. and and you're right, We we, we too often in, in Wales and England and most countries I've worked in, we, we, we deal with change on too superficial a level. Yeah. We deal yeah. with it in terms of slogans or rhetoric rather than building it down into the practical repertoires that you and I have that we use on an hourly basis in, in our work.
3: No, I really appreciate that, David. Thank you very much. You've reassured me apart from medicine. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Andrew. That was an excellent question. Thank you, David. for Thanks, coming. On. I think that the importance of being clear about what the nature of the challenges is, is really important, because sometimes we can get bogged down in lots of challenges in school, technical challenges and adaptive challenges that perhaps we don't have the, the technical knowledge to resolve. And um, this this links quite closely to the professional learning, the coaching model that you described, David, and you went through. Um, Can you just talk to us about sort of the importance of um, the theory elements exploring and justifying from the theory elements and then linking that to the practice, particularly thinking about shining a light on educational leadership?
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Um, okay, Uh, most of, uh, I don't think we take We've taken seriously enough the nature of teaching uh, as a professional skill, and um, uh, I think that if we're if we're going to do the types of things that Andrew was alluding to, all right, it's a it's about our skills as uh, as educators um, uh, as much as the, our knowledge as educators, all right, uh, and. Um, we, you know, we send people to do master's degrees and PGCEs and all, all of this stuff. What we've got to do is be building a curriculum of learning and a curriculum of professional learning, which I think relates back to a comment that Mark that Mark was making was making earlier. So we need to we need to be producing a model of learning that actually reflects uh, the reflects on how we best learn a skill. And what we what we uh, what we found is that the four components of a training model uh, are the theory, demonstration, practice and feedback, all of which in a workshop, non-threatening situation. All right. And when I'm doing this in a (laughs) in a workshop setting, I use a piece of video um, uh, taken of two Australian sportsmen. Uh, Pat Cash and Shane Warne. Did, did, does that communicate? Does do anyone know those guys? One's a tennis yeah, player. The, the uh, other is a cricketer. And it's a TV program that Pat Cash runs. And he's trying to teach uh, Shane Warne not how to play tennis, but how to do the sliced backhand. And it's really interesting. When I first switched on the TV program, uh, I heard this really intellectual discussion. Uh, between these two guys who are respected as sports persons but not so much for their um, academic, uh, uh, ex, you know, uh, uh, cognitive expertise, but they were talking very theoretically about the nature of spin and physics, all right? So if you're going to do the sliced backhand, you've got to understand how you, how you where you hit the ball, how it turns, all right? You, if, you, if we're going to actually teach independent learning and move up Bloom's taxonomy in terms of curiosity and questions we need to understand how the phases of bloom build on each other all right we've got to understand if we're planning a lesson properly how do you set a success criteria that really motivates a student and provides a guideline and scaffold for their learning all right so there's a theoretical dimension to to much of what we do on a daily on a daily basis, and unless you can get that cognitively into your head you 're always going to be wallowing around right you 've got to understand it, and it doesn 't always help you know, it can help by me describing it, but it 's much better if I can demonstrate it to you all right um, and then you need to have practice and then you need and then you need the feedback all right i um you know i, I mentioned it. Uh, 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 en passant that I'm a profe- uh, I'm now a retired professional mountain guide but when I take people off-piece skiing all right, they have to actually understand what the theory is about teaching uh, about, about how to ski powder how you weight and balance your your uh, how you balance your skis how you weight one knee in order to initiate the, the turn that is theoretical they then need to see it they then need to practice it and I need to give them feedback all right now it seems to me we have to build that into our commonplace professional professional learning, and it's exactly the same process we go through with, with our kids as well as we try to scaffold and scaffold the acquisition of, of of skills from youngsters. You're using that sort of generic training framework, and I think we need to make that that way of learning commonplace and then apply it in whichever setting we find ourselves. Um,
2: I think that's really helpful and I think you know you've said that that can be applied to any setting that you're in and I think you know in the classroom as well I think it's very clear that there's a a a process there that's really simple that can help everybody when they're learning new skills whether that's children in the classroom or, or leaders or sisters trying to develop um, further
1: skills. So thank you for that. Can, can I just, can I just add, add one last comment to that? One of, the, one of the people who was very, very influential on my thinking and then practice as an educator was Jerome Bruner, the, the American psychologist. and he wrote, he wrote a book called Towards a the Theory of Instruction, which really so sort of one of the few books that changed my life. And he talked that a theory of a theory of instruction, theory of teaching, needs to be linked to a theory of knowledge, a theory of curriculum, uh, and to a theory of development, a theory of learning, or be doomed to triviality. All right. So what he's saying is we've got to link a notion of how we learn to how we teach and to how knowledge pro- progresses. And then he also came up with the notion of the spiral curriculum. I can't quite recall the exact quote there, but anything can be taught to anybody at any stage of development in an intellectually um, uh, authentic way and so we start with the basic concepts and as we go through the school we, we, we spiral around in terms of our notion of of, of curriculum so the learning be, be becomes ongoing and dynamic rather than episodic.
2: That's great thank you very much That's really interesting lots to think about um, We've got more questions and I don't want to run out of time. So we've got we've got two more questions lined up. So we've got Simon Roberts
4: next. Good morning, Um, morning, Simon. Good morning. How are you? Um, I just pick up on your point there first is it wasn't part of the question I was going to ask. But I I still agree with that about whether it's with pupils or with um, staff about the need to. Get the knowledge and then the application afterwards. And uh, I can only hope in my, in, in my future skiing that I can move from snow <laughs> to going yeah. onto powder and offwards. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. someone might yeah. teach me. Um, but my question came, There was a discussion in my group with uh, Ken Jones, who's had to leave us, um, who's an educational consultant, I believe. Do um, oh, I know Ken? Uh, Ken.
1: Ken's an ex colleague of mine, an old colleague yes. of mine. Yeah, give and him we, my best.
4: I will. Um, I, but our question was really around challenge, I suppose. And within the systems that you describe, um, two to, to varieties of that. Firstly, the, the need within your own senior leadership, where, where we recognise that you need to have people on board, you need to have people who are like-minded, as you said. But where where within that system is the need for critical challenge? And trying to negotiate that that, that ridge between the blindly following and, and having people who challenge on a regular basis, and so that was the first part of the question, and the second part was around um, in, in rating yourself on a, on a scale perhaps from whether it be excellent or, or, or not so good, um, Is there a risk that where you put yourself when it's um, challenged by a system? a System leader or someone in the system, how does that affect well being? Um, if you're if you, if are where you think you are is very different to where somebody from outside thinks you are. So, it's so a two points to that, uh, two parts to that, David. But, uh, yeah, okay, interested to hear.
1: yeah, yeah. I, uh, to be quite frank with you, that slide I showed about getting like minded people on board, um, uh, isn't wasn't mine, I, I took that from a piece of uh, of writing, uh. And I don't, I don't altogether agree with that. Um, if you just, if you, if you just, if you just sort of, uh, appoint people who are sort of replicas of, of yourself, then quickly you, you, you can move too quickly into groupthink or into sort of people just sort of always supporting each other. You do need to have that sort of bit, that critical, that critical dimension. And that's why, you know, well, when I, uh, I talked, I mentioned, in passing the formation of a school improvement team and um, when I when I'm forming a school improvement team I try to make it a a vertical slice of the school so everyone feels sort of have some some degree of representation there and I used to joke and this this is a you can tell when I first developed these ideas I used to joke when I was sort of Uh, advising on who you put in, who you recruited to the school improvement team. You always had to have somebody from the smokers club in the school, right? (laughs) So, you know, when there was a smoking room in schools way, way, way back. but they often had an alternative view of what the school or what the school was like, and I think you have to make you have to make room for that alternative view, not to have people who are necessarily always negative or banshee, but someone who is actually represent, representative of a range of of a range of things. And if you can't do that in the school, then I think that's the value of of networking, because you can then sort of you know create networks with a range of views that then you be get. You being to generate through the network um, a sort of a, a, a variety of sort of uh, of, of, of lights or interpretations on the, on a particular event. So I agree with your premise. We have to seek out challenge and we have to sort of. But it must be constructive challenge, not negative, not negative challenge. And then your point about rating. And I think um, that is well, again, that's well taken. Uh, and um what's quite interesting i remember now vividly uh, 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 some schools i was working with in brisbane you know, i do quite a lot, lot of work in australia and i was working with some groups at some schools in um, in brisbane and um uh, this was the first of a series of workshops i was doing on on school improvement that took place over a year and this One school in particular, there were about a dozen schools with their school improvement teams in in the room. And one school came in and they were sort of pretty full of themselves. You know, they thought they were pretty, pretty good. And then when we got down and began to actually look at and they were talking about themselves in very positive ways. But when I then got them to actually look at at the school improvement pathway. Oh, oh, oh. And what you found was that they were changing their views on their own performance when they were faced with pretty specific criteria. And the thing is that you got that, and that became a learning process. And I didn't say to them, you're good or bad. I said, look at these criteria, consider these types of questions. And what do you do in those situations? So what you're doing is you're putting them into an inquiry situation, which in which, it requires them to come onto to more accurate judgments, uh, for their, you know, about, about their own situation. And that's the trouble we have with of- Ofsted inspection systems. Well, th- one of the problems we have with, with Ofsted inspection systems in, in England or or, or, or the like of, of Ofsted is they come and make a judgment and offer you an evaluation, uh, without actually taking you through the sort of a process of understanding what the actuality and what the what the what the reality actually is which is why at one for a few years when I was in the in the English government i was was responsible to ofsted they reported to me and i got them to introduce self evaluation as part of the process so the school would evaluate where it is first and then you'd engage in a professional dialogue Based upon the self evaluation rather than moving directly into evaluation or judgment. Do you, do you see where I'm taking you? I think so. We've got, to, we've got to be developing a pedagogy of this, right? So we regard sort of a rating as being a learning process, but it's got to be set against explicit criteria and done in a sort of a generative rather than a judgmental way.
4: Great. Thank you. Thank you, and I, and I agree with the point at the beginning about having dissenting people in. I've, I've always tried to,
1: yeah. to no, do that, um, including,
4: including with the governing body, by trying to get the, the vocal dissenting parent into your governing body because yeah. it's better they're there with you and it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: outside. Yeah, absolutely,
4: absolutely. Okay.
2: Okay, we're on to a question next from um, Sharon Hope around system leadership can i say first of all um thank you very much for giving us considerable food for thought this morning um, and um and for just sort of helping us to rethink some things it's always useful and always creative a a time for creative thinking when we're listening to people like yourself but my question is i'm an associate and there are a number of associates of the academy here today and we're often described as system leaders It's a term used for us and and amongst other people about us. And I just wanted to ask you, really, in view of some of the things you've spoken about this morning, how do you perceive our role and and our continued role in a time of considerable change, challenge and transformation and reform in Wales?
1: Mm. Well, how long how long have you got then, Sharon? Uh, uh, yeah, the trouble, you know, uh, uh, and I've got to accept some responsibility for this uh, for the introduction of the term. And um, the trouble with using a term like a system leader is that. Um, you know, it's open to, to multiple interpretations and we don't define it. We don't define it clearly. and It becomes a sort of a catch all and becomes so it becomes so general. Uh, it loses all, it loses all meaning because you don't You know when people are talking to you about that. They're not really defining the, the, the role that you're taking. And I think when I sort of developed the concept, uh, it was it was related to uh, to two things. It was related, first of all, to a sort of a a set of dispositions that are related to an individual. You know, what are your values based? What are your what are your areas of commitment? What are your areas of of interest? And, And this also relates partially to the type of school you, that you're working in. You know, if, you, if you've got a really challenging school, you've got no time for system leadership. You have to focus on getting that school right. But once the school's up and running and it's, it's ticking along nicely, then you may have the opportunity to share the sort of the practices that you have developed in your setting to, to other settings. So part, partially, it's a sort of, a set of dis, it's a set of dispositions about your moral purpose. Uh, it's partly about where your school actually is and then thirdly it's about the skill base and the experience base that you can bring that you can bring to the system you know, so are you an expert in you know in in, in literacy are, are you an expert in in sort of uh, developing creativity so what are the practices that you can bring from your setting into the wide into the wider context Then I think you layer across that a a, a national policy, all right, which may then sort of say, well, we, you know, our our national priorities are X, Y, and Z. We're looking for system leaders who can, who can operate in those areas. We are putting a sufficient resource into, into this to, to fund it. All right. One of the things we found in England was it was much cheaper to pay a school to actually turn around the local school than it was to put in a, bunch of superannuated inspectors all right and it was more and it was more effective but it did co- it still cost money right um so you've got to put that level of resources and you resource in and you've got to have i think a systemic policy about it that you're not just sort of you know the the worst thing is that you see is is that you end up by by you know, driving around the country, committing random acts of kindness all over the place, all right? Which uh may make you feel good and uh may help uh not may endanger us reaching uh reaching 1.5. Uh but um it doesn't really help because it's not it's not systemic. So we need to, you know, we need to see the role uh in a, yeah, as I say, in a systemic way and deploy that expertise uh, in a rational and, um, a, and collaborative and supportive way.
2: That's great. Thank you, David. OK, we're almost out of time, but there's one more question we're going to squeeze in, but we've got a very short amount of time left. So if we can have a very brief response it's a question from Mark Jones.
3: Hiya. Uh, uh, thanks, David, for everything this morning. Um, just, uh, I th- think you've, sort of answered some of uh, the points in this question already but do you think we need to revisit current models of leadership to reflect current situations uh, especially as leaders now are spending more time on the maintenance and the firefighting if you like as opposed to the development
4: uh side of school management
1: yeah well uh, abs- absolutely mark absolutely and um uh you know, and I'm currently working in university and I've just um, had to take on some very big university wide roles. And one of my real, you know, I work for a university that's got a very moral purpose, a very strong moral purpose, a very strong commitment to social mobility. And yet increasingly I see ourselves uh, bogged down by maintenance types of issues management becomes so much more important than leadership. And I think we've got it. We're, we're turning our world around around the wrong way. Um, yeah. We do need to have efficient, efficient processes, but they're, they're, they're not the, the, the be all and end all uh, the, the, the important thing is creating of powerful uh, environments for our students to learn and the systems the management should be serving that not not the other way not the other way around so i think there's i think there's a um i think there's a a, 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 a need for a continuing um, in wales a, 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 a national conversation about the nature of leadership and our goals as an educational system. And once we're clear about our moral purpose, then we begin then to sort of take our bureaucratic and management structures from that. You know, the one country that's really accelerated up the PISA rankings in the last few years has been Ontario, one system has been Ontario Canada. And one of the reasons for that is that, is that Dalton McGuinty, the premier of Ontario, who's just recently retired, was there for that 10, 12 period, 10, 12 year period his his moral purpose remained the same his commitment to education remained the same the narrative deepened over time he brought the right people in he put the right degree of of of, of resources behind it and he developed a sort of a language about education that was pervasive in the culture of, of, of Ontario and that's what we need to be doing in Wales as well as well and adjusting our leadership strategies to accommodate that.
2: That's great. Thank you. What a great question to end on, bringing us back to moral purpose, which is where we started this morning. So, David, thank you very much. It's given us a huge amount to think about. It's been really, really interesting this morning. There's certainly lots of follow up reading that, that I'm going to take from, from today. Um, so just handing back to you now, just for, for five minutes, for any closing remarks. Okay. To say, thank you. Thank you,
1: Um uh, Well, uh, thank you, uh, Tegwin. Thank you, Joe. Uh, for the invitation to join you this morning, it's been um, just uh, a real privilege for, for me to um, be sharing this uh, this time with you. And thank you, thank you all, the participants, for finding the time in your busy days to sort of engage in, I think, pretty important dis- discussions about uh, where we go uh, as an educational system. And uh, I just want to uh, uh, sort of conclude, really, by. Making a link, as I said at the outset, between this somewhat sort of analytic and strategic uh, analysis or description of leadership that I've engaged in um, uh, this morning, uh, as I was asked to, uh, to link this to my life's work, uh, which is about sort of improving Im- improving schools. And uh, I've been giving some talks on, on this recently, and um, it uh, what I'm going to say. Um, uh, I just I find it difficult to actually believe the, the the veracity of what I'm just going to tell you, but um, I talked about uh, Jerome Bruner's book uh, Towards a the Theory of Instruction as being one of the books that changed my life. The other book, that another book that changed my professional life, was a book called Fifteen Thousand Hours. Um, which was published in 1979. And the lead author was a man called Michael Rutter, who was a professor of psychiatry in London. Does anyone, is, is anyone familiar with 15,000 hours? Okay. Well, it, uh, this book was, uh, and there was David Reynolds, who as a friend and colleague in Wales was doing similar research. And um, David will claim that his research predated that of Michael Rutter. But no matter, the real point is that the work that Rutter and David were doing was the first research that demonstrated unequivocally that schools actually make a difference. And what was just this is what I just find incredible that up until Seventy nine. The common belief was educational performance and attainment was related to gender, to socioeconomic status, to um, to uh, ethnicity, and to IQ, and a whole range of, of factors, but unrelated to schools. The school you went to didn't make a difference to, to your performance, which, of course, nowadays is just such a ludicrous position to hold. Now, I'm telling you that to sort of uh, illustrate how far we've come in this period of time. But the work that I have done since then, having read uh, uh, 15,000 Hours in the summer of 1979, I I then began to develop and collaborate with colleagues to develop the movement for school improvement. Can we actually... Uh, take this research evidence on what makes schools effective and can we then develop methodologies or strategies to help schools become better and over the years uh, I've uh, developed uh, three generations I would suggest of school improvement programs one called improving the quality of education for all uh, which I I developed when I was working at Cambridge initially but also there were some networks in in Wales Uh, the curiosity and powerful learning program. If you go into my website, you'll get some indication of all of this that I developed uh, in Australia and is still working well there. And recently I've developed the uh, produce the unleashing greatness um, uh, uh, school improvement framework. And I just want to say a few words about that and the leadership implications, because in a sense, my work on school improvement uh, has been um, has been embellished and supported through the conceptions of leadership I've been t- talking about today. And um, this uh, quote, uh, the reason I called this third generation of, of school improvements uh, work, uh, Unleashing Greatness, is from this quote from my predecessor in the English government, uh, Michael Barber. When Michael once said that you can mandate the move from awful to adequate fair to good, but as one progresses, one needs to unleash greatness. And for me, that's a wonderful phrase to think about school improvement that uh, when we're collaborating with schools uh, from the national academy that we actually collaborate in order to unleash the greatness of those uh, of those schools and to help them fulfill uh, their potential uh, and their and their aspirations and so i've tried to sort of um it's all very well saying that but how do you how do you go about doing it and um I've begun to in the paper, and I think I've sent you that um, uh, is available uh, after this uh, or before or after this session is I've tried to sort of identify a series of steps that um, that uh, we need to go through to scaffold the journey of the journey toward towards greatness. And um, I've talked about uh, uh, most of these as I've gone as I've gone through the presentation this morning. So I'm not going to go through each each, each, each of those. I think they're sort of uh, they're almost self-evident and speak and speak for themselves. But then I try to sort of put it into some sort of strategic st- strategic framework. And I guess if you sort of look at the left-hand side of the the diagram, there's stuff about instructional leadership and the development of narrative in terms of setting the scene uh, for for school improvement, for the journey of improvement that that, that we're on about. So those sort of four interactive boxes on the left-hand seat are the sort of early phases of our our work, getting ourselves into place. And then, in a sense, adapting that narrative to the sort of the curriculum that we're facing this this is sort of um, trying there to sort of respond to andrews question i i, I guess um a, a, a bit because it's the sort of the, the it is the curriculum through which we manifest our moral purpose right uh, because the curriculum is the artifact that we use the tool that we use to scaffold and and, and promote learning but if we want to embed and sustain this in a leadership way, then what then what we really need to be doing is moving to the right-hand side of this, of this diagram. And the problem I see in a lot of implementation is that we can do the narrative, we can try to adapt the schemes of work and the cur- curriculum, but unless we've got the infrastructure and the sort of the what I call the engine house. Of school improvement, we're not going to really make the sort of the progress that we really that we really want to, and this is the this is the sort of the implementation aspects of this all, um, and I talked about the triads and the peer coaching, the focus on the instructional core, and then we. Generate this through what we call instructional rounds, which is a way of doing non-judgmental observation schools, in order to sort of generate uh, a language, consistent language about learning across a school and groups and groups of schools, and I would hope uh, uh, across a whole nation in terms of Wales. So for me, that you know, and the evidence now is absolutely crystal clear in terms of my work, that unless a school can put this infrastructure into place create this engine house, is not going to sustain greatness. And you only unleash the greatness. You only really begin to sort of focus on the learning, uh, uh, enhance the learning of your kids if you get this infrastructure in, in, in place. And this that's the sort of the gift, uh, I believe, of leadership uh, in the way that I've talked about it uh, this morning. So that's, I think, is where I need to end. Uh, that's, that's the moral purpose stuff we've been talking about um, that uh, we... In order to change the larger system, you have to engage with it in a meaningful way. I'm delighted that that's what the National Academy is doing. And if you want to have any more information, then go and uh, have take a look at my website.
0: Goodbye to the podcast. I'm hon o Bernard Horn the Academy of Israel. Transcribe ar Spotify, podcast on Apple, and Google. Afiduk Beth the Kafli Perat. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.